Well, thank you, Seth. I hope that's the uh, uh, one of the many New Year's resolutions you have, is to let that be the first of many coming organ solos. Um, praise the Lord for that. Thank you very, very much. And uh, among our other organists, that has to be a blessing as well. And uh, what, a, what an honor. 136 of the Psalter, Psalm 136. Let's head back there uh, this morning. And uh, it was texted to me that we do have a record number of live streamers <laughs> today. So, um, welcome to everybody, whether snow stranded or present. We're all gathered together in the Lord's name and, and certainly glad uh, to be together. And um, the Lord's been good to us this year in so many ways. And it's wonderful to be part of a church that we know that all of our acts of worship are unto a faithful, loving, loyal God. And, and um, even, the, even the act of worship, which includes giving in a year that uh, we were blessed so mightily by our God, an opportunity to be, to be generous and to the Acts 1-8 efforts from Grace Church and, and so much more. Can I share a little bit of tidbit with you? You guys that are faithful members of Grace Church, this is kind of free for all of you who are guests, so if you want to tune out on this, that's fine. Um, you know, as members of Grace Church, we exist off of three different budgets. How many of you know that? Members and consistent family members at Grace Church, right? We have a, a basic budget, right? We call Grace, and the next level up is blessing. Um, depending how we end this year and continue on in the new year, we're this close to being able to go to the next level budget. All right, isn't that exciting? And do you know what happens if we go to that next level budget, which we're this close to, and we maintain that through the end of March? You all have collectively written a $110,000 check to the building program. Wouldn't that be exciting? Um, just, and that's built right into that next level to be, a, to be a blessing to you folks because we do need to break ground in April, don't we? I think um, before the holidays even came, folks, um, we had um, not enough space for everybody. And uh, the more we plant and we give people away, the more people come from within a five-mile radius of our church. Uh, and I think that's a God thing. That's a God thing for sure. And we certainly want to have enough space here to shepherd as many souls as possible, don't we? And um, so this year, the Lord was faithful to us in so many ways, faithful enough for us to be able to focus on those few comments, and I know that you've prayerfully been doing so. Uh, but I also like to consider the way God expressed his loyal love to us, practically, just by looking at this particular psalm. So we're going to take a look back. We're going to look at a song that recounts God's faithfulness to his people. And so we're going to look back this week, and the next time we're together, we're going to look forward as we begin the new year. We've already read Psalm 136, and uh, we just need to remember that God is loyal to his people. He is loyal to his people with a covenant love, which is an everlasting love. So this particular psalm is a song that is part of the final 
book of five different books of songs that the Holy Spirit has gathered, inspired, and preserved for us. This fifth book of songs, of which Psalm 136 is a part, is often known as the uh, the Hallel songs, or the books of praise, the, the songs of praise to our Lord. If the Psalms teach us anything, they teach us it is good for the people of God to personally and publicly adore him. And it certainly should be a prioritized uh, discipline among us, shouldn't it? I hope that uh, if you have not been, I hope you find your way to the discipline in the new year of personally spending time with God, praising him by reading his word, spending time privately in prayer, and just adoring him and remembering him for his covenant loyalty to you as an individual, to your family, and of course to our church family. As we've already read, 26 times the phrase, for his loving kindness is everlasting, is repeated in this song. As we read aloud, we read antiphonally as they would have sung antiphonally. The song leader would have sung the first phrase and the chorus of God's people would have sung that refrain 26 different times for his loving kindness endures forever. You know, when we find something, a word or a phrase used so repetitiously in Scripture... It's an encouragement by the Holy Spirit to us to think much about what's been oft repeated. You think of Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I think this would be a um, good text to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible next to Psalm 136, 2 Peter chapter 1. I believe seven times in that chapter, the Apostle Peter, who writes at the end of his life, he's about to be put to death, a martyred for his faith. This is kind of his last will and testament. The most important thing that a, that a soon-to-be-eliminated saint from this earth would remind us is that it is good to remember it's good to remember the faithfulness of God to his people. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10 that it is always good for God's people to remember his faithfulness to his people in any dispensation of time. It is good for us to remember the loyal love of God and to make that a daily habit, not only in our private worship, but also in our public worship. We might say, what is loving kindness? We've passively identified it uh, this morning, but let's actively investigate now what this word loving kindness is. It's the Hebrew word hased. If you want to write it out in English, it's C-H-E-S-E-D, C-H-E-S-E-D in the Hebrew tongue. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, this word would have been translated as the word mercy. So when you see the word mercy in the New Testament, right, it really has behind it the idea or the reality of what hesed is in the Old Testament. And we'll investigate here even a little bit 
further. Generally, we've understood mercy to be something withheld from us that we deserve. Something withheld from us that we deserve. We all deserve because of our sin condemnation. The Bible is very clear about that. Our sin separated us from God, and because we are sinners, remember what Jesus said, even if you've sinned once and you've broken one area of the law, you're guilty of how many? Jesus said that. It's in his word. The bottom line is, even one sin separates us from the purity of a holy God, and there's only one way to be reconciled back to that God, and that is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So simply turning from our sin and placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ removes us. We experience in Jesus Christ the mercy of God. God removes from us what we do deserve because we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and turned from our sin. That's mercy. Something God removes from us that we deserve. We know grace to be something, God giving us something that we don't deserve. And certainly in Jesus Christ, we both have the expression of God's mercy and grace. But we're not here this morning to simply undo that simple definition of mercy as we know it, but to add to it. The Old Testament believer's heart would have understood that loving kindness included that notion of the word mercy and so much more. The word for loving kindness um, is also translated in the Old Testament as kindness or love, but predominantly it is translated loving kindness and is almost, almost exclusively in reference to God's heart for his people. God's heart for his people. As a matter of fact, It is the word that describes God's undying affection for his people. As his love for his son, Jesus Christ, is everlasting, so when an Old Testament soul would embrace the reality of the coming of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and turn from their sin and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, God's undying covenant love would be upon that Old Testament soul because of the faith he would have placed in Christ to come. So it is with us, right? When we look to Christ for complete and final salvation, the Lord's loving kindness is now ours. His everlasting, covenant, loyal, determined, unchanging love is now ours. Why? Because he is pretty determined in how he loves his son. His love for his son is undying. It's limitless. It's infinite. So when we own his son, God loves us in the same way. We don't find the word chesed translated as loving kindness uh, until a certain Bible translator named Miles Coverdale carried the word over into English for us. And we're so glad that he did. What he demonstrated for us in his translation of the scriptures is that we already stated that this word loving kindness, he saw in his translation to be almost exclusively used in the way God demonstrates his love for his people. As a matter of fact, Jewish historians would write about man's love being like wildflowers. 
They're here for a short season, then gone. But God's covenant, said love for his people, is always certain and always everlasting. It is immutable because God is unchanging. Once he has chosen to love, God cannot unlove. This is why our word mercy is described as God withholding something from us that we deserve. We deserve condemnation because of our sin, but God in Christ has loved us with an everlasting love. And once we are born again in this way, he cannot and will not ever unlove us. To be loved by God included being forgiven by God. And in his forgiveness, punishment is withheld and love replaces condemnation. The Old Testament mind would have known that to experience this loving kindness commitment from God would have meant that he or she would have had to repent from their sin first. This is very important for us to understand when we talk about the Old Testament. Because God made a loyal commitment to the nation of Israel, didn't he? He made that through Abraham. But as you study the Old Testament, the millions of Israelites that followed God, the majority had known political loyalty that God had for them, but they did not know saving loyalty. So when the psalmist writes about God's loving kindness, and when people express their thanksgiving to the Lord because of his loving kindness, we have to understand in the congregation, in the midst of the people singing this, some would have only known it merely politically. And a very small remnant would have known it spiritually. So what I would ask you this morning before we move on, do you believe that you are saved because you live in a country that pledges allegiance to a flag and on its money states that we're one nation under God? Do you believe you're safe because we live in a country that used to and tries to hang on to embracing a Judeo-Christian ethic? Or have you been transformed on the inside? by this mercy, by this loving kindness? Have you met Jesus Christ, turned from your sin, placed your faith exclusively in him, and you've noticed that primarily in the way you live? He's changed the way you think, the way you act, and the way you live. He's given you a newfound affection for who he is, for his word, the Bible, for his people. A desire now an innate desire because of the righteousness of God in you, Jesus Christ, to, to turn away from sinful habits and to gradually become more like the Savior that now lives within you. Do you know, have you experienced personally this loyal love? Everyone in the Old Testament would have known that they were imperfect in keeping the law of Moses just look at one aspect of the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. No one in this room would ever stand and, and proudly proclaim that they've perfectly kept all ten. So we're all lawbreakers. And there was only one perfect law keeper. And that was Jesus Christ. 
So that's why Paul tells us in Galatians that the law is only our schoolmaster. It's our tutor unto Christ. Because we're all lawbreakers, there's only one lawkeeper. There's only one person with whom God is completely satisfied, and that's his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the perfect law keeper, we set ourselves juxtaposed to him and we say we are imperfect and we are in desperate need of perfection. And so we turn from our sin and our imperfection and we throw ourselves upon the loving kindness, the mercy of God, and we say, God, I can't save myself. Only you in Jesus Christ can restore me. I need him. Lord, save me. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you will know covenant love, that transforming grace in Jesus Christ. It's only a miracle of God and his spirit that can be performed in your heart. So this psalm is about the loving kindness, the loyal love of God, the covenant love that God had for his people in the Old Testament expressed to us in the New Testament in the local church in the person of Jesus Christ. And as verse 4 tells us, uh, as you read earlier, the recipients of this covenant love would have known God to be a God of great wonders. A God of great wonders. Certainly the, the psalm is about rehearsing by way of song and remembering back the wonders of God and his loyal love to us. But really the, the, the theme of this chapter is the great wonders of God as demonstrated through the way he loyally loves his people. So I only have two points this morning as we wrap up that I would like to discuss with you in relationship to this loyal love and the great wonders that God has demonstrated to his faithful people through his loyal love. What wonders in this song has God demonstrated to his people. What wonders? Well, we are going to highlight a couple of those here. Uh, First of all, um, we're going to look at the nature of this loyal love. If you're taking notes, we're only going to be two points this morning, the nature of this loyal love, and then we're going to look at the wonders, the expressions of that loyal love, okay? The nature of that loyal love and then the expressions of the same. It's important for us to know at this point that this song, as many songs, recounts history for us, as we've already stated. In other words, it's a song that emotively expresses what God has done for his people in the past. It teaches us that remembering what the Lord has done for us in the past is certainly spiritually healthy for us. In this past year, we must remember God's loyal way in which he has loved us if we are to remain faithful to him in the future. And it must be rehearsed often as it is in this psalm. So we're going to look at the nature and the expressions of this loyal love. But before we do that, I'd like to look at the way the the chapter begins, the song begins and the way it ends. What is the psalmist calling us to do in the first part of each one of the first three verses and the last verse of the psalm. You'll notice to do what? Give thanks. There it is. He wants us to give thanks. 
Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to the God of heaven. And we're going to highlight very briefly why those titles for our God are given there. But we have to understand that uh, within the context of this song, the Old Testament singer, the one that had personally, spiritually experienced this loyal love through a salvation experience, would have known that giving thanks and loving kindness were eternally linked. People that appreciate the nature and the expressions of this loyal love would have known to be easily thankful people. In other words, you could stand in the, in the company of God's people in this day, and you could have been an unthankful person while singing this psalm, and an unthankful person that would have sung these words and this constant refrain would have been someone that would have appreciated God's political appointment for Israel in that day. People that are politically driven, politically motivated, aren't necessarily people that are broken over their sin. They're conquerors. They don't need a savior. They're conquerors. They're subduers. They're not looking for uh, a Jesus that would die on a cross. They're looking for a king that would come and rule on a throne. They appreciate the political. And they'll be glad to sing of all of his wonders, but they're never a thankful people. The people that were truly participants in God's grace and salvation would have really tuned in to the way this psalm starts and the way this psalm concludes. And they would have truly been able to be thankful not merely because they had been politically appointed by God for a particular plan in this time, but because they had been spiritually changed. So let's remember that. People who are walking in the spirit, people who are enjoying and learning of God's loyal love on a regular basis will be known as a thankful people. We have a very thankful church. I've never been part of a company of God's people that's been so thankful. So that's really encouraging to me. In the new year, let's increase more and more. And that would be demonstrative of your understanding of what this loyal love really is. Well, let's talk about the nature of this loyal love. What's its makeup? What's its makeup? What's its DNA? The DNA of this loyal love is described for us here in the first three verses. And it's described for us in the titles that our God is given here by the psalmist. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is what? He's good. Have you ever doubted that God's good? I have. I, I, I would, I would, I would um, really need to spend a lot of time with you if you could tell me, because I would need to learn from your extreme maturity that you had lived every one of the days of your life and never thought that God didn't make a mistake somewhere along the line. God's not always good. We know by faith that God's good, right? But I find it interesting here that the psalmist begins with thanksgiving, but the first place he goes when he discusses the makeup or the nature of this loving kindness, he goes to the goodness of God. Out of all the attributes that the psalmist could have gone to first, why this one? 
Why this one? Well, let's understand a little bit about the goodness of God. Um, Grudem, in his systematic theology, says that God is not a God is not in a constant state of trying to juggle his attributes. All of his glorious attributes are essential to himself. They are not something he does or aspires to. Rather, they are simply who he is. He goes on to say, God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. We must remember that God's whole being includes all of his attributes. He is entirely loving, entirely merciful, entirely just, and so forth. Every attribute of God that we find in the scripture is true of all of God's being, and we therefore can say that every attribute of God also qualifies every other attribute. Now, that may be a definition for those who have been in the Lord a little bit longer than others. But basically, when the Bible says that God is good, he is himself the nature of good. He is good. He defines what good is. Another theologian goes on to say that God is the final standard of good and and that all that God is and does is worthy of his own approval. So by faith, we all trust this for sure, but it's hard at times when difficult things enter our lives to believe it. But we understand that God's goodness includes all that God is and does and is worthy of his approval. So we must understand that when God sent his son that his son was worthy of his father's approval. Would you agree? Now hang on with me here as we go through this because this, has, this plane has to be landed for all of us in a personal way. So Jesus Christ is God and therefore Jesus Christ is intrinsically good. Remember a few weeks ago when we were studying Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who are called according to God's name. Do you remember, and if you don't, I'll try to help you remember, what the definition of good was within that immediate context? The definition of good was our pursuit of Christ-likeness. So when you come to know Christ as your Savior, positionally we know him. God knows us in his Son. So the rest of our lives, we are in pursuit of becoming more and more like who now we own as our Savior. And since Jesus Christ is God's express image in flesh, God in flesh, and God is good and Jesus Christ is intrinsically good, and we own him, we own now the righteousness of God, the the goodness of God. And then by God's grace, after we're saved, we spend our lives pursuing the likeness of Jesus Christ who is good. Now hang on with me here. So, whether we've had a really, really, really good year, physically, you've been in good health, or whether you've had a terminal diagnosis, or whether you've been through multiple surgeries, whether your stock portfolio spiked or whether it plummeted, whether you lost a loved one in death or you didn't, whether your circumstances are good or bad, our pursuit by the grace of God is always the likeness of Christ, who is good. So if I get news this afternoon 
that's utterly devastating. God's good. And what does he require of me by his grace? To pursue the likeness of his son. And so even though I cannot speak because I'm weeping, but I cannot walk because my heart's failing because of devastating news, I can know this one thing. God is good. And we're to be thankful for that. And it's not just a blank statement, God is good. He's given us his intrinsic goodness in his son. And even though we still live in fallen flesh, in broken humanity, God in Jesus Christ lives within us. And that grace that saves us is that grace that sustains us to know just one thing, regardless of my circumstances. God has graced me with the ability somehow through this mess or through this victory to be made a little bit more into the image of my Savior. If there's nothing else you can grasp, nothing else you can cling to, right? The Spirit of God intercedes that we might know His Word when we cannot speak. Remember that, Romans 8? And God desires us to pursue the goodness of Himself, which is not just positional righteousness in Christ, but also practical righteousness in Christ. It says here that He's good. But there's now two titles for God. That's an attribute of God. Now there's two titles for God that, that uh, sum, uh, summarize for us the nature of this loyal love. What's its makeup? We have to understand its source before we understand its makeup. God is good in his character, but it says here that he's the Lord of Lords in verse 3 and in verse 2, that he's the God of gods. Can I just tell you this? Um, that these two titles for God are titles that express and tell us of his sovereignty. So we've gone from the attribute of his goodness, now through titles, understanding another attribute of God's, which is his sovereignty. What is sovereignty? One author writes, sovereignty is just simply understanding that God is in complete control. You can rest in this truth. No matter what you're going through, he's not unaware and he's not helpless. Another theologian says that sovereignty is the exercise of God's supremacy. Now hang on with me here. Because when you get into theological definitions, they can sound really dry and cold. So I'm going to read this. and It's going to sound dry and cold, but I'm going to summarize it. And give it some warmth and in flesh to our lives. Sovereignty is the exercise of his supremacy, but definitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him and no one can hinder him. The sovereignty of God is nothing we should fear, but everything in which we should take comfort. Because God makes no mistakes, and he's immutably mistake-free. He will never allow us to be tempted above that we are able to endure. 
Along the way, the God of gods and Lord of lords will never leave us nor forsake us as we are in Christ. And we should be able to, as we remain thankful to him, trust in him with all of our hearts and lean not unto our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. So again, whether life's been pretty devastating for you, whether it's been a pretty good year, if you own Jesus Christ, right, we remain thankful for the opportunity to pursue his goodness, which is Christ's likeness, and we're able to take comfort and trust that no matter what our circumstances, God's in control. God's in control. And he cannot help himself but be in control. And since he promises that he will never allow his righteous ones to go without bread, he's going to provide. So that's a little bit about the nature of this loyal love. A little bit, just a little bit. It's so much deeper than this and so much wider, but we have so much time. Right? I want to wrap up very quickly this morning with some expressions of this loyal love. Some expressions of this loyal love and, and maybe make a couple practical applications to our lives in this past year as we conclude. The evidence of his loyal love, evidences of his loyal love, or expressions of his loyal love are found in verses 5 to 25. I am going to rifle out to you a brief outline of these many verses. And I would encourage you this week, as you head into the new year, to, to go back and study these verses in preparation for a new year. Let's look back as we prepare to look forward. What are some expressions of his loyal love? We find expressions of his loyal love, verses 5 through 9, in creation. In creation. We've already read these verses. Verses 5 through 9 in creation. He made the heavens and the earth. He spread out the earth above the waters. He made great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars by night. The expressions of his loyal love are evidenced in salvation. Verses 10 to 15. In creation and in salvation. Spread out before you multiple commentaries on this psalm. And you'll start to see some familiar refrains throughout these commentators about the way these expressions or evidences are outlined. Very clear, God wants to remind us of his loyalty through creation. He reminds us of his loyalty in salvation. Verses 16 to 20, in his protection, in the way he protects. Salvation, creation 5 to 9, salvation 10 to 15, protection verses 16 to 20, provision verses 21 to 25. God provides God provides. And what does he provide? He's pretty comprehensive in his provision. Verse 21, a place to live. Verse 22, a history to enjoy. Verse 23, particular needs cared for. Verse 24, safety from haters. Verse 25, if he can feed a sparrow and clothe a sparrow, certainly his righteous ones will be fed and will be clothed. And you can cross-reference next to verse 25, Matthew chapter 6. Right? Uh, very clear there, verses 25 to 34. 
of Matthew 6. These are the expressions of his loyal love. Has God's loyal love been demonstrated to us in the snowfall this week? Can you think of how many ways? I mean, just really in, when you live in our part of the country, the experiencing of all four seasons pretty comprehensively. Did you know that in 2018, if the Lord doesn't come back, there will be a winter, a spring, a summer, and a fall? Did you know that? Do you even think about that? Of course not. It's just what happens. It's like a slam dunk happen. Right? Whatever global warming is, right? It's really interesting. God said there will always be four seasons. Always. Creation is an expression of his loyal love. If God can be this systematic, if he can be this clear, if he can be this orderly, certainly when his expressions of his loyal love to his people, spiritually and practically, are just as consistent and clear and enjoyable. Remember Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God, right? And the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters what? Speech. And night unto night shows forth knowledge. Creation is an expression or reminder or an evidence of his loyal love for us. So if we're discouraged, let's look at how the Lord is faithful to his creation. He set it in order. It's always going to flow according to the way he's created it. And so when we're recreated in Jesus Christ and his loyal love is now ours in his son, you can be rest assured that if God set his creation to function in a certain way and it always does, when he sets his love upon you, it will always have an infinite spiritual influence according to as God planned it by his grace. It's evidenced in salvation. I think it's interesting here that the illustration he primarily uses is Egypt being, or Israelite being pulled out of the the, um, overlording of the Egyptian empire. Plagues were sent. A release was given. Enemies destroyed. Wilderness wandering provision given. All to demonstrate what for us? Well, first of all, we understand that there was nothing special about Israel for God to be able to say, you're going to be my people. God just decided to do it, right? There was nothing special about Abraham. He was just another dude. So when they're captive by Egypt, God remembers his promise to Abraham. Not because Abraham was special, but just because God keeps his promises. He's Yahweh. And so when his people are oppressed, he promises deliverance. And as you know in the scriptures, Egypt is a type of the world. So God's people were called out of Egypt. And God protected his people. He saved them. For what reason? Just because he chose to. Express his loyal love to these people called Jews. In our dispensation, 
as the church. We're not Israel. But why did God choose to love you? My friends, there's nothing special about you as there was nothing special about Abraham. I know you've been told by probably great-grandma and grandma and grandpa for years that you're the most special thing that ever lived, right? And you're the apple of your dad's eye, your dad's little girl or baby girl, and you always will be. And that's all wonderful, and that's great, right? But underneath, right, those titles, underneath all those niceties and those warm expressions, when you're by yourself and as you grew older, in your darkest hour, you really know what you are. At your worst, you would never want great-grandpa to know what was going on. So why would God choose to love you? I don't know, but I'm certainly thankful for it. So just as he placed his loyal love upon Israel for no reason and brought them out of Egypt in captivity, he's done the same thing for us. And we're to be thankful for that. For his loving kindness is for how long? For everlasting. Why me? I don't know, but I'm certainly thankful for it. In his provision, and we've already given you five different things here that God has practically provided. As you think back over 2017, has God provided you a roof over your head? Has he provided you a history to enjoy? Maybe even a spiritual history to enjoy, for certainly here. Has he taken care of your needs? Has he protected you from any haters in your life? Has he used those haters to grow you into his goodness, which is the likeness of Jesus Christ? Is there anyone here that's gone more than a day without your own choice, without food to eat in the last 365 days? God's good, isn't he? Even those simple provisions is a reminder to us, is an expression to us, an evidence to us of his loyal love, of his loyal love. How does it finish? Verse 26, right? Give thanks to the what? God of heaven. We've had an attribute expressed. God is good. He's God of gods. He's Lord of lords. That's his nature. That's his sovereignty. But I think it's very interesting that the psalm begins with giving thanks for God's character and his person, but then it finishes here by giving thanks for another title that he's given. And you're only going to find this title here in the book of Jonah and in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. And what I find it very interesting here within the context of all three places it's mentioned in the Bible, each context that this title, God of heaven, is given is to remind the people of God, the true spiritual people of God, that there is only one God in the heavens. Because in any culture, in any time, there's going to be many gods, many lords vying for our attention. Many temptations to be distracted away from the the true and the living God. 
So the way this song concludes is, give thanks, my people, because there is truly only one Lord, and he has one Son and one Spirit. And in the Godhead has been expressed to us this everlasting loving kindness. So don't ever forget. So don't ever forget the evidences in creation, salvation, protection, provision. Don't ever forget how good God has been to you in his son because the day you forget is the day you stop being thankful and the day you stop being thankful is the day you begin to get distracted by all these things and all these allurements in our world that take us away from God. He's the God of heaven. And he's completely satisfying for those who have been loved by him. Completely satisfying. So look back over 2017 today. We always know that we are loved with an everlasting love in Christ, but practically how has God expressed that loyal love to you? And allow those myriad of things, you'll have quite a litany of things to write down, won't you? Those myriad of things let us remain faithful to the one and true living God, the God of heaven. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you that your loving kindness is everlasting. We thank you that it's certainly loyal and that you are immutable. And I pray, Lord, here this morning for those who have yet to be transformed within by your grace in Jesus Christ, that they would realize their desperate need for him today. Lord, for people to know about Jesus Christ is not enough. They must know him and allow him to be Lord of their life. Well, our heads are bowed and eyes closed and no one looking around. I wonder if there would be anyone here today that would say, I could think of no better way to finish an old year by starting new with Jesus Christ. In the privacy of this moment, you would just cry out to God individually and just say, oh Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know it's my sin that put your son, Jesus, on the cross. Lord, today, I'm broken over that. I turn from my sin. I want no more part of it. And I ask you, Lord Jesus Christ, come into my life. Come into my heart. Be Lord of my life. Lord, save me from myself and for my sin. I want to know your loyal love. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. Thank you, Lord, for saving me and for forgiving me. And thank you, Lord, for giving me eternal life. If you prayed that prayer this morning and you meant it from your heart, the Lord heard you. And the Bible says you are now a recipient of that loyal love. It's an everlasting love. With head bowed, no one looking around. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, pray for me this week. 
I invited Jesus today to be Lord of my life. And I'm relieved. I'm thankful. I always knew a lot about him religiously, but I never knew him personally. I never knew I could. But this morning I found out. I finished an old year in a new way. Please pray for me. I asked Jesus into my heart today. Would you just lift up your hand? I'm not going to have you be embarrassed. I'm not going to speak your name. I'm just going to pray for you this week. Anyone at all? Raising your hand doesn't save you. You're already saved if you prayed that prayer. Anyone at all? I would say, Pastor Tim, I think I'm almost persuaded, but I have a few more questions. Would you pray for me as I seek the answer to those questions? Would you lift up your hand? I'm almost persuaded to ask the Lord to be my Savior. Lord bless you. Thank you. Lord bless you. Thank you. Almost persuaded. Not quite there yet. But I'd love some answers to my questions. Anyone else? I appreciate your honesty. It's beautiful. Just know we're here to answer and try to help in any way we can. We look forward to you talking with us and having some coffee and talking about these eternal things together. Father in heaven, thank you again for the work of your spirit among us. Thank you for the assurance of your word. It's been a good day to be in your word together as your people discussing this song together. In Christ's name we pray, amen.